to the strange brew podcast my name's jason barnard and that was the animals and don't let me be misunderstood i've got the huge honor to welcome john Steele today founder member and original drummer for the animals to talk about his wonderful journey through music and uh, a huge welcome john hello thank you nice uh, nice to meet you jason it's an absolute pleasure and it seems that uh, 2022 is a, a really important year for you because you've got a lot of dates on across the whole year you've got the animals and friends farewell tour and then uh, you've also got the date at the uh, great british rhythm and blues festival uh, in uh, late august as well so yeah and come yeah it's good to have that back again it's been off the off the calendar for a couple of years like everything else and uh pete barton's got it back on so i'm looking forward to that he, he organises all the bands in the in the Cone Festival, and um, he's also our, our agent, so we get to <laughs> we we get to get get a job. And you've got lots of dates, uh, obviously across uh, Britain, particularly up until the the summer, and a few more. And you're going to Europe, Canada, and Australia as well. Yeah, Australia just been confirmed a week or so back, so um, that's good because that'll be um, coming into their summer, October, November time, somewhere around there, about three weeks. Something to look forward to. I know the terminology farewell tour. So does that indicate that it, it will be the, the last dates or the last large bunch of dates for the animals and friends? Well, it, it was it was formatted about uh, well before the lockdown started, you know. 
like everything else, everything ground to a halt. So uh, it got postponed and rescheduled and postponed and rescheduled. And uh, I mean, personally, I, I think Pete Barton had the idea that at, at my age, it was probably, <laughs> probably going to be my last tour <laughs> anyway. But um, I'm still around. Like, I, I feel as though... I've been robbed of two years of, of uh, work, you know, so I'm, uh, I'm planning to get the, get those two years back. <laughs> if I can um, manage to hold myself together that long. <laughs> Absolutely. And you've, you've got a great lineup at the minute and uh, the shows have, that you have been able to do in the last few years or so have gone down really well. Oh, yeah. We've, we've got a good reaction everywhere we play. It's a great little band. It's the best lineup I've had since the original band, really, to be honest. It's um, it's tight and we get on with each other. It's very good for banter on the road. Yeah, but, but, but most of all, we're, we're good on stage and the, the audience kind of get the vibe from us and come away satisfied. Brilliant. Let's go back into, the, we'll start at the, the beginning or near the beginning. And one of the tracks that you, you wanted to, to feature on one of the albums was uh, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. And I've chosen Freddie Freeloader from that album. And, is that indicative of the fact that certainly in your early years, jazz, and I guess originally that was trad jazz, was very influential for you musically? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I was the youngest of four uh, siblings, and um, my older brother, he had a, he wasn't a big jazz fan, but he had um, stuff on, you know, 78 records, like um, Fats Waller and people like that. And um, I, I, I kind of got taken. And then I went... Um, I went to get to grammar uh, at, at age 11 and I got taken on, under the wing of um, two or three older guys who um, knew a bit more about jazz and uh, they sort of pointed me in the right direction and to go and see live concerts. First concert I went to was Newcastle City Hall with uh, George Melly and Vic Mulligan. That was good fun. And then the second concert I went to was Louis Armstrong when his first visit to the UK since the 30s, I think it was. And that was absolutely astounding, you know. And uh, I quickly sort of um, did a bit of, you know, research and found stuff that um, really appealed to me. Oddly enough, for a young kid of of, of that that age, it was uh, it was jazz that was recorded in the nineteen twenties. You know, Louis Armstrong, Hot Five, Big Spider, Big Jelly Roll, Morton, people like that. And eventually, I uh, moved on after school to uh, Newcastle College of Art, and um, that's where Eric and Eric and me first met in the induction class of 1956. Also at art school, <laughs> I met guys who were in the modern jazz. Yeah. And uh, they, they kind of directed me into um, to a new field. And I, I've just followed my way through the through jazz all my life, yeah. being my influence. But also, Eric was very big on, um, well, I mean, first when it started off, every, everybody of teenage that year were dancing to trance jazz, you know, and rock and roll was just beginning to take over. Um, and Eric was suddenly taken over by uh, rock more than jazz. And uh, so we both started um, a band. We started a band, first of all, playing jazz. <laughs> I, had, I played trumpet. I took trumpet up because that was the lead instrument in the most Dixieland bands. And um, Eric said he, was a, he had a little band, a local band, and he was playing trombone. Well, he had a trombone. He couldn't play it. He was... <laughs> <laughs> Lots of barpy noises, <laughs> but it was it was a four piece outfit with um, me on trumpet, Eric on trombone, a guy called Alan Sanderson on drums, which was a snare drum and a hi hat. That was the, that was the full kit, and um, 
Jimmy Jimmy Sanderson on uh, on banjo. But uh, after after a few months, not more than three months, Eric just got bored with it. He, he said, "I want to sing rock and roll," you know. So I mean, we we're like fifteen years old. So Alan, the drummer, said, "I want to play bass." There was a new instrument out called a Fender bass electric, and uh, he said, "I'm going to play that." And Jimmy on banjo said, "Okay." I'm going to play electric guitar then. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll play the drums then. So, <laughs> and Eric said, well, I'm just going to sing. So that, that was the, that was the nucleus of the, of the band sorted out. I mean, um, I just started playing drums. I, I was no, no use playing trumpet in a rock band. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was, we called ourselves the pagan jazz men. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> We did a number called Pagan Love Song, and uh, we took the name from that. And uh, that, that sort of stumbled on for a little while, not a long time. Um, but as I say, we, we switched instruments and became the Pagans and played pop, rock, all kinds of stuff. I've just been, I, I, thought, I thought I'd dig into some more. I started to write a book about 30 years ago and uh, made some notes, and I've never got any further than that. But um, I've just had a look. So what we were doing then? Yeah, please. Yeah, um, yeah, we played Jailhouse Rock, Move It. That was Cliff Richard. <laughs> Twenty Flight Rock, Blue Jean Bob. Ain't that a shame? That was Fast Domino. Let the good times roll. That's a good number. Think it over from um, Buddy Holly, Sweet Little Sixteen, Chuck Berry, etc., etc. All, all sorts of stuff like that. That was our kind of rockabilly rock repertoire. Now that uh, that's where we started.
terms of rock and roll, there's a lot of similarity to material that was coming out in the 30s and the 40s of uh, artists like Big Joe Turner, Roland Pete. I mean, really, the the roots and the inspiration for that, even before the, the 50s, it's just that it exploded onto the scene in, in the 50s and kind of continued. So were you hearing some of that even pre-rock material in that period? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Louis Jordan, as far as I'm concerned, was, was pr- probably the first rock and roller in, in a way. Brilliant uh, singer and sax player. Lovely sort of, they call it um, jump and jive now, that, what the music they, they played. But um, Joe Turner, he put out an album in, in the 50s called uh, Boss of the Blues. And that's where Roland Pete and um, a lot of other great songs, uh, it, it, it sort of became our... Um, sort of workshop, if you like, you know, because uh, not long after we uh, became the Pagans, um, we played a church hop in Biker, and uh, that's where we met Alan Price. So it was, uh, there was this band called um, Frankie, somebody or other. He was basically a Jerry Lee Lewis, everybody would have been a Jerry Lee Lewis tribute band nowadays. So we were playing the second spot, our little uh, Pagans band in the, in the corner. It's a big upright um, piano in the corner of the, the hall. And uh, this kid from the other band came over. He'd been playing, playing rhythm guitar with Frankie. And uh, he said, can I sit in with you? And he sat down at this uh, upright piano and hammered it. You know, he was a bloody big two-handed boogie player, you know. And that was Alan. So we uh, we poached him, persuaded him to join us. And uh, so really that was where the nucleus of the animals came together. You know, Eric, me and, and Alan. And we played all the numbers on the Joe Turner album, Boston Blues and lots of other stuff. And then I got a job. Um, <laughs> I, I'd, uh, just before I left art school, um, I applied for jobs around. Um, I, I wasn't a fine art student. Um, I was in technical art, you know, commercial art, technical drawing. Yeah. I got a job in the drawing office at D. Howland Aircraft in Hatfield. Uh, so I left Newcastle and became a, a working person. Didn't like it at all. <laughs> and after uh, four months, this is beginning of 1960, um, I, I moved back up to Newcastle and um, teamed up with Eric again. And uh, he was uh, he was getting together with um, Alan playing what we always played and a guy called Nigel Stanger on tenor sax. Who else? Can't remember. It was just, oh, yeah, we had, we'd call ourselves the Kansas City Five by that time. Right. Because that was basically um, uh, Big Joe Turner was was a Kansas City blues man, you know. Yeah, it's Kansas City Five. They were joined um, by a tenor player called Jeff Headley, uh, so it became the uh, Kansas City Five. That's right. And then he introduced a couple of um, musicians from Ghana who were uh, living in the in Newcastle at the time. A trumpeter called Pat Odoi and an auto player called Danny Okpoti. They were lovely guys and played. Um, they were the high life players, actually, not uh, not rock and roll, but um, they joined in, so it became the Kansas City Seven, Seven Piece Band, <laughs> <laughs> playing all this stuff from from back then. But then Alan suddenly quit the band. Oh, yeah, he, he'd, uh, we were playing the Downbeat Club in Newcastle every Friday night by that time, and he, one night he just didn't turn up. Uh, unreliable, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he'd gone off to join a band called the Contours. That was capital K O N, one word, and capital T O R S. Contours. They were a good band, and uh, you know played covers. 
good pop music covers um, with a good rock and roll ground into it. Anyway, the bass player in that band was Jazz Chandler. Yeah. So that was the connection. So I got a job. Uh, this was beginning of 1960, and um, I got a job playing in a in a restaurant, you know, playing cocktail jazz, bow tie, brushes, and uh, smoochy, smoochy sort of soft jazz. <laughs> and uh, but I, I was actually earning uh, decent money. I was able to turn professional, you know, because I'd had a sort of day job that was didn't amount to much. So I'd, uh, I was doing like whatever it was, seven, six nights a week. It was going all right. And I, so I sort of kind of lost touch with uh, Eric and Alan and uh, what, what they were doing. And the contours had had quite a lot of gigs. But I bumped into where Chaz and Northumberland Street, the main shopping street in Newcastle, one afternoon. And he said, oh, Johnny, he says, just a guy. He says, well, we've got this sort of splinter band from off from, off from the contours. Uh, Alan, Alan's kind of called it the Alan Price Rhythm and Blues Combo, which is a horrible name. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's it's me, Eric, Alan, uh, a guy called Barry on drums, and, um, and Nigel Stanger on tenor sax. Nice uh, nice stuff, but we're, we're we're having problems with the drummer, you know, which we, not getting on at all, you know. He says, "Would you be interested?" And I said, oh, "I'm sorry, Chaz, but I'm I'm pro now. I'm uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> I said I'm making fifteen quid a week down at this uh, this, this nightclub." And he said, hey, we're, we're getting something like that, you know, just, I said, what? And he said, well, I can guarantee you 14 quid a week because um, we've got uh, sessions at the Agogo, we've got the Downbeat, we've got the um, Vic, the Vic at Ridley Bay. So we're doing like um, six nights a week plus plus a, a double on the Saturday night, Club Agogo early and then the all-nighter at the uh, Downbeat. On I said, bloody hell, I'll do. So um, about, about a week later and... Um, I joined the band, and um, the night I turned up was at the all nighter at the downbeat midnight, and uh, put me set me kit up, and, um, and I was introduced to a, a new young guy because Nigel Stanger by this time had left to go to university, and this young guy was Hilton Valentine, going to play guitar. <laughs> I'd never met Hilton before. He played with played with the band on on the coast called um, the Wildcats. <laughs> So yeah, we shook hands and uh, got on stage and started playing. You know, no rehearsal, <laughs> never did a single rehearsal, <laughs> and we played um, all the stuff that Eric and me and Alan knew very well. And Hilton just joined in, and um, yeah, that that was um, as I say, the Alan Price rhythm and blues combo. Thank you. 
I was amazed at how, in the in space of a year where I'd been playing in the nightclubs and stuff, how how they built up this really strong following, and the place was jammed. It was jumping. I thought, bloody hell, this is different. And um, it was like that everywhere. Which is, and we played like five nights a week. I think it was at the Club of Go Go, the downbeat on a Saturday night, Whitley Bay, Victoria on Tuesday night. And I think one night off a week, and um, everywhere was packed. Everywhere was jumping, you know. And I thought this is this is weird. It's, this is um, we're getting we're getting it in the nineteen sixty three by now. Of course, the Beatles had appeared on the scene, and suddenly everything was changed. Uh, you know, they were knocking on the door of the United States' biggest market in the world, and uh, we were playing at the Club of Go Go and backing people like. Uh, when vi- visitors from from the states, Johnny Johnny Hooker and um, Sonny Boy Williamson in particular were special nights. Uh, we had some great times with that. And um, one night, the guest band was Graham Bond organization, mm-hmm. and Graham Bond had a great little band. It was um, was Jack Bruce on bass, Ginger Baker on drums, Graham Bond on Hammond organ, and Dick Hexel Smith on tenor. Great little band. Yeah. Anyways. Um, <laughs> Graham um, asked if he sat in with us when we, you know, we opened the show, did a little spot, and then they played, and then we went on to close the night. And on the last set, he came up and said, "Can I sit in with you?" You know, and he he got in and uh, jammed with us, and he was great, lovely fella, Graham. And um, he got talking to Mike Jeffries, who owned the club, who um, became our manager <laughs> that night. <laughs> Graham said, "You want to get these guys down to London? I can give you some." Uh, Give you some introductions, you know, um, and and uh, Mike immediately got us in the, the next day into a, into a room with a contract and <laughs> signed this management contract. We didn't know we'll sign anything here. And then he went off to he went off to London, and he met up with um, Giorgio Gomolski, um, who was manager of the Yardbirds by that time, and uh, a guy called Ronan O'Reilly, who had a place called the Scene Club just off um, Piccadilly. Great Woodman Street, and he later became the the founder of the first pirate radio station, Radio Caroline. And uh, we thought, wow, it's all happening here. Um, so anyway, Mike came back and um, he said, "I've got these gigs. You're going to swap you swap gigs with the Yardbirds, and we, we're going to go down to London. And they're going to come up here and do all your gigs just for a, a couple of weeks." So fine, yeah. So we did that, and. Uh, we, we just took off. The scene club was full of mods, and we'd never seen mods before. There was a, there was a yard outside the club, and it was full of these um, scooters, you know, Lambrettas and Vespers, all with uh, foxtails and uh, chrome customized stuff. Mm. It was comp- it was a completely novel thing, purely in London at the time. It, had, it hadn't gone anywhere outside of the West End of London. But they were the sort of fan base of, of, of the scene club. And we thought, Christ, we'll never go down with this lot, you know. <laughs> the hardly rock and roll, hardly blues men. But they they took to us, you know, they really took a shine to us. And um I remember the the first one of the first nights we played there, um Georgie Fame came from this he was at the Flamingo Club on Water Street. He came by and we played a set and he came up and he said, You're gonna step on a few toes in this town. <laughs> thought, wow. <laughs> Oh, by the way, the most important thing about this exchange was um, when, when when Mike came up back to Newcastle with his arrangement sorted out, he says, oh, by the way, we're going to change the name. Graham says this Alan Price rhythm and blues combo is just doesn't actually trip off the tongue. So uh, he suggested this, 
He said, they're going to be called the animals. And we thought, bloody hell, that's weird. <laughs> because it sounded outrageous at the time, you know. I mean, we loved it, except for Alan. He didn't like it. But um, that, that's the way it goes. So, yeah, so there we were. We were playing in London as the animals for the first time. And people like Geordie Famer coming to check us out. And it was like that everywhere we played, suddenly where people come and check us out. And within a couple of months, less than that, um, we were playing the uh, Eel Pie Island venue, which is a strange gig in the middle of the Thames. You had to get a walk across a sort of wooden bridge to to get your gear on into the venue. And we played there. The, the, the Stones were regulars there. And um, there were two very straight looking guys in the, in the audience who turned out to be um, Mickey Most and Peter Grant. Uh, Peter Grant was a, a booker for the Don Arden a- agency at the time. You know, he got on the phone and sold gigs and sold bands. And uh, Mickey Most uh, had, had been a sort of, he was a, a, from South Africa and he, he'd had a minor hit record with, uh, it was called the Most Brothers. And uh, now he was turning his attention to record production. He was, he was pro- I think he was the first independent record producer. He was, um, he was cool. He wasn't a great producer, but he could pick hit songs. He was really good at that. Uh, so anyway, the next thing we knew was um, we're in an office in uh, in Mayfair uh, in this very plush, show-busy sort of office with Don Arden at a big desk and um, was very sort of showbiz rather than rock and roll. But uh, Don, Don said, uh, I'm going to put you guys on tour and bring Chuck Berry over to the UK for the first time. And uh, it's a three-week tour and you're going to be uh, one of the support acts. I thought, bloody hell, that's cool. So, um, yeah, there we went. So in terms of uh, Mickey Most, did he actually pick We've Got Next, Baby Let Me Take You Home? And, and the animals are certainly in that period were known for putting their own style on some of the folk and blues and, and updating them. Was it actually Mickey who, who found tracks like that? Yeah, it was Mickey who, who gave us that uh, that number, which... We we thought it was a little bit poppy for us, actually, to be honest. It, it, it was a, de- a demo he brought back from... He was going to the Brill Building in New York and collecting songs for, you know, potential head parade stuff, and um, he brought that back for us. The only reason we, we decided to record it was um, because on Bob Dylan's first album, there was a, a song called Baby, Let Me Follow You Down, which is pretty, pretty much the same song. Yeah. We thought, oh, well, if it's good enough for Bob Dylan, we'll, we'll give it a go, you know. So we recorded that, and that was our first um, first single, and it got a tickle in the charts. Got somewhere in the low in the twenties, but it was enough to get us on radio, you know, get us played. And then we had this this uh, two or three weeks in the, in the all over the UK, two shows a night, sellouts everywhere. Chuck Berry, Carl Perkins, Nashville Teens, the Swinging Blue Jeans were 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 second or third on the bill, but they only lasted two nights because the audience that came to see us were hard rockers. I mean, it was Chuck Berry and Carl Perkins and the Swing and Blue Jeans. Um, they didn't go down well at all. The, the audience, I mean, they were heckled. <laughs> and Don took them off the tour because he, he realised they, were, they weren't a fit, you know. So, uh, yeah, and then it was the National Teens, as I say. But the, the, the National Teens backed um, Carl Perkins and a band... Right. A Liverpool band called King Size Taylor and the Dominoes, uh, who who worked in a lot in Hamburg, uh, good, good band with with brass as well, you know. Yeah, uh, they they were back in Chuck Berry, and that 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 was 
probably the last time Chuck Berry ever rehearsed with a band, a backing band, because he became notorious for just turning up with any local band, but cheap as possible, uh, not even rehearsing with them, just going straight, yeah. calling out the numbers and off he went, you know, that was, that was his uh, style. He was, um, he's a very tight-fisted guy. <laughs> but this this band rehearsed with him. We 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 started off the Finsbury Park Astoria, and uh, we, we went down there to to start the the first tour, the first date of the tour. And and in the afternoon, they were rehearsing with Chuck, and we were we were gog, you know, because he was like the god to us, Chuck Berry. And they were a great backing band. So it was probably the best backing he had for. <laughs> I don't think he ever had a better backing band after that, you know. I've seen him several times since then, and um, he doesn't do himself any favors, Chuck, when he's on on, on the road with um, with trying to you know cut corners. It was great, and um, that's where um, House of the Rising Sun comes into the story because uh, we'd been kicking around this number, you know, trying it out, loved it, you know, just just the feel of the song, and without any conscious thought about it, you know, we we, we created the first kind of crossover folk rock single using electric instruments, you know. Yeah, didn't occur to us at the time, but anyway, we we're, we're playing it on the tour because Chaz. Even then, he seemed to have his business head on. He says, you know what? He says, everybody in the, on the tour is going to be playing rock and roll and, and, and trying to outdo Chuck Berry and da-da-da. 
this number is completely different. So we should do it on the tour because it's a complete contrast. And he was bang on right there, you know. It was a, almost a showstopper. I mean, you could feel the response to it, you know, when we played it live. So Mickey had a session book for us in, uh, in London to do a, a, some... It was a title thing for Ready, Steady, Go. It was a big TV show at the time on a Friday night. And they asked us to come up with something. Eventually, it was the Manfreds who got 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. But we had a session to, to record something along that line. We said, let's, let's record House of the Rising Sun, you know, while we're at it. Um, so we finished. Um, I've got a note of it here. Um, yeah, May 17th, we played Liverpool Odeon. The next gig was 18th. Uh, at Southampton Gormont. So we drove down from Liverpool to London, got into this studio called Delaine Lee, little one little basement, one track studio. We went in and uh, got set up, it was about two o'clock in the morning or something, you know, and um, we, we played a few bars for, for balance. Like I say, it was just one track, so it, there was no overdubbing or anything like that. So we went in, set up, played a few bars, got a balance, and then played the number through once, one time. And um, Mickey called us into the control room and he said, listen, listen to this. And the uh, engineer at the desk played it back. I can remember every word of this. Mickey said, that's a hit single. And we went, wow, hit single, huh? Yeah, okay. And then the engineer at the desk, David Siddle, he, uh, he said, it'll not, it'll, it'll not work, Mickey. It's, 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 it's four minutes, 35 seconds long. So the BBC will never play it, you know? So, uh, Mickey, uh, these exact these are his exact, exact words. He said, um, "The hell with that. We're in the vinyl age now. <laughs> Let's go with it." <laughs> but Dave said it was that. He's dead right. The BBC didn't wouldn't play it because it was too long. But we got a, sh- a slot on Ready Steady Go to play it live, and it was such a an important plug that that show for every band that ever was on it. And, and the record took off, and once it started going up the charts. BBC had to play it anyway, you know. So, so we had the first folk rock single. We had the first single to break the sort of two and a half minutes, three minutes maximum barrier, and uh, we were we were and we were going up the charts. Next thing you knew, it was number one. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> Amazing. This is a copy of a, a letter I wrote to my girlfriend at the time, Anne Armstrong, and I said. Uh, I told you about Ready, Steady, Go. It's something like Ray Charles talking about you. And the other side is Rising Sun. It's going to be plugged as an double A side. Rising Sun sounds great. We did it in one take. (laughs) I'm not making that up. (laughs) She kept all my letters and um, that's a copy of that one. So yeah, one take, one take. And um, it was in the bag, in the can. You went over to America and was part of the British invasion and became huge stars over there. Yeah. Yeah, because um, within a short time, Rising Sun went to number one in America. The next thing they knew, we're off to off to the States in uh, the, the, the summer of '64, uh, and um, that was like it was like a different planet to us. I mean, you know, when we when we were growing up in the '50s, everything that influenced us seemed to come from the States. You know, rock and roll, jazz, blues, movies, and just about everything. And um, and in those days, nobody could nobody could afford to go to America unless you're a big businessman or a film star or something like that, you know. So uh, here we were, four four working class Geordie lads, five sorry, five working class Geordie lads heading for the big big Apple, you know. Great, we got a great reception there. We each got we 
there was a, <laughs> a promotional stunt by the uh, record company, a, a, a British Triumph car, British car manufacturer called Triumph. Uh, they had a model that, that over there was called the Tiger, Triumph Tiger. And somebody had picked, you know, Tiger, animals. <laughs> so they had five of these little sports cars, two-seater sports cars, each of us in there, uh, sitting on the back back seat. And each of us had a, a, a beautiful model, dressed like a, with fishnet stockings, basque, uh, tiger whiskers, and a tiger's tail. <laughs> and uh, we set off in convoy towards Manhattan with a, with a motorcycle escort. <laughs> <laughs> and there we were driving into to, to the Manhattan skyline uh, with its ridiculous convoy, and it was our, our first, you know, our first time in America. It was like a, a weird. It was, it was so weird, <laughs> like being in a movie. <laughs> so there you go. Go! 
it doesn't seem that long before Alan left then. Uh, yeah, um, spring 1965. He just uh, disappeared, basically. <laughs> Unreliable Alan Price, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> second time he quit the band. Yeah, uh, that was a weird one, that. We were just about due to um, start a tour in Scandinavia. And um, Chaz was actually sharing a, a house with him. And uh, on the morning we were supposed to go out, which was going to be the day before the tour actually started. Thank goodness. Alan wasn't there. And he, he'd done a runner for whatever reasons. Basically, I, I think I've always, well, we all of us, all of us thought that Alan basically wanted him be the leader of the band, you know? So he thought Eric was getting all the glory and um, he wanted to be the top man. So he, he went, basically he went off to form his own band. You know, that's what that's what the outcome was. But anyway, that left us without a, a pretty good keyboard player. So um, we knew a young guy playing played the band in, in Newcastle, a guy called Mick, Mick Gallagher, yeah. um, who we thought would fit in uh, at short notice. Get us. Uh, we knew who we wanted almost immediately because um, a guy called Dave Robry, who wasn't from Newcastle, but he studied at Newcastle University and became part of the jazz scene there. So we knew him from then. And Dave was a world class player, you know. Yeah. Um, but he was playing uh, with a, a band called the um, Mike Cotton Sound, who, who did a lot of um, support stuff, you know, support of visiting, you know, singers and things. They were a busy band. Uh, so we couldn't get Dave immediately. He had to, he had to kind of give his notice in and um, work his couple of weeks' notice. But um, we had this tour to do in, in Scandinavia, and the next day <laughs> we were flying out. So we uh, we we got in touch with Mick Gallagher because he he was been in a band that was kind of took the animal's place at the Club, Club of Go Go, did all our gigs, and uh, so we he, he knew what he was um, expected to be able to do. He was very young and, and hadn't been kind of on the road at all before, so it was a big, big learning curve for him. Anyway, we got um, we we flew out to to Stockholm or, or Gothenburg, I can't remember which now. And um, then Mickey joined us the next day with the day of the, the first the first show. <laughs> we we just um, we all seat of the pants stuff, but we got through it. You know, it was um, wasn't a massive tour. It was um, like two weeks of, of, of about ten gigs, ten eleven gigs, but we got through it anyway. And by the time we got back, um, Dave Robey was freed of his uh, commitments to, to the Mike Cotton Sound and uh, joined us. And um, we just kind of carried on as before. Dave, as I say, he's a world class player, so he just settled in straight away. Yeah. And he had the kind of jazz background that um that was quite important to the feel of the band you know because it was it was never a sort of straight down the middle rock and roll band there was always a kind of um jazziness to it a bit of a blue, bluesy swingy swinginess to it you know so dave fit it in perfectly so there we go new 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 keyboard player Had dave joined by the time of the recording of we've got to get out of this place yeah yeah i think that was his first uh first recording with us which was a big hit for us but really um it was very important here as well because you know um, Alan, Alan was a big sort of player to to lose, and um, we kind of just went seamlessly um, from one hit to the next hit, but with a different keyboard player, and uh, so it was quite painless, really. In this dirty old part of the city. 
When the sun refused to shine People tell me there ain't no use in trying Now my girl, you're so young and pretty And one thing I know is true You'll be dead before your time is due tracks like you know we just featured we gotta get out of this place but then moving on to another great single it's my life the animals seem to strike quite a, a really interesting fine line between still having a poppy edge but a, a bit of a darker undertone so you were it's my life that takes what is i think it's a brill building song but you put your own darker spin on things yeah yeah that's that that's without even thinking too much about it that's what we did um the uh it was actually a brill building song uh, it was either Barry Mann, Cynthia Wheel, or um, or uh, Carol King, Goffin and King, one of those writing teams from the Brill, Brill Building. Cracking song. I mean, it wasn't like kind of bluesy, but we, as you say, we it it, it was a grown, what I call grown up songs, you know. And that, 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 that's what's great about playing nowadays. All of those songs still stand up because they've got that hard edge to it, you know. So songs about life and. Uh, uh, not not sort of middle of the road pop. 
to the, the switch away from Mickey Most then? I think we just fancied a change, you know. I mean, Mick, Mick, Mickey wasn't a great producer in the sense that he wasn't a hands-on on the desk thing. I, I don't think you'd know what to do with a fader, you know. <laughs> he just stood behind the engi- engineer and uh, listened to what was coming through the through the speakers. But he could certainly pick uh, a hit record. He was, he was very good at that. That was his main strength. Uh, funny guy as well, a nice fella. But... Uh, I think we'll get, we'll got to a stage where we we'll want to sort of get a, a producer who, who actually uh, brought more to the to the band than than Mickey did. Mickey just played, you know so listen to this. What do you think? And if we liked it, we recorded it. And if we didn't like it, we didn't record it. Whereas we wanted a, a producer who could actually guide us in right in different directions, you know. So that's uh, that's why that change happened. I can't remember exactly um, how we did it. You know, I can't remember there being a sort of uh, sit-down meeting and a, uh, sorry, Mickey, but you're fired kind of thing. Uh, there was nothing like that. I just We just seemed to drift from one producer to, um, I can't remember his name. You probably know it. Um, the guy, he produced uh, some some of Bob Dylan's later stuff. Tom Wilson, I think. Yeah, Wilson. Yeah, Tom Wilson. Yeah, lovely fella. Big, tall guy with a long scarf. Inside Looking Out, so that was the first single produced by Tom Wilson as opposed to Mickey Most. That's right, I think, yeah. Yeah, at a different studio as well. We'd uh, moved to um, somewhere in Notting Hill. Seemed to be a bit of a, a divide in the, the band where you've got Eric, who's kind of going more on that psychedelic edge in the 60s, and, and you guys, which was more kind of straight ahead. Yeah, very much so, yeah, towards uh, towards the end. um uh, I think late 1965 was the time when um, Eric and Hilton first started doing a lot of acid. Um, and Dave and Charles and me kind of stuck to drinking, you know. <laughs> um, I never fancied that, uh, that that acid tripping stuff at all, you know, personally. And as it become more prevalent in, in, the, in the business, uh, I, I began to see... People's personalities completely changed, you know. Um, and Eric and Hilton they went off into some different kind of world. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not going there. I don't fancy that at all, you know. I want to, want to keep my own personality, you know, because it, it seemed like to me it, it kind of altered pe- people's personality, not necessarily for the for the better, you know. There was a lot of peace and love going on, but at the same time, everybody <laughs> that I knew who 
took uh, took a lot of acid, became very paranoid, you know, and uh, she said, bloody hell, don't want to go there. So I just I just stuck with uh, alcohol and jazz, uh, jazz and Dave pretty much the same. So there was that that division, you know. Is the, does that difference on drugs and, and outlook ultimately see the the end of the group as as we knew it? Yeah, and, and then obviously the the band ultimately over the next year or so fell away. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty much the the cause of it, as um, as far as I can recall, because um, we weren't talking the same language anymore. Um, Eric and Hilton were, you know, off, off to off in La La Land most of the time, and um, it, uh, it was. It was Became a bit of hard work. That's that's pretty much where I where I decided to get off the <laughs> get off the ship. <laughs> Sit here lonely like a broken man. Sell my time and doing the best I can. I wasn't bars that surrounding me. But I don't want your sympathy yet. Oh baby, oh baby. I just need your tender loving to keep me sane in this burning oven. When my time is up, be my reaper. to work again pains and blisters on my minds and my hands from living daily with those canvas bags folks will feed them they'll drive me wild and I'll be happy like a newborn child be together till you
didn't stop your involvement in music and uh we've next got eggs over easy but i think this was back around was it 1971 but was that a was the connection with eggs over easy because you were involved with Chaz on the management side yeah um we got together um the, the original animals for a, a sort of reunion yeah con- uh, we did a charity show uh concert at uh, newcastle city hall in december 1968 and um by that time Chaz had become a Record producer and manager Jimi Hendrix, you know, he offered me a job. I was I was playing around in Newcastle just doing gigs and stuff, but I wasn't doing anything significant. And um, he said, he said, why don't you come work with me? I thought, oh, yeah, why not? So I did, and um, he introduced me to the, his new his new discovery when I got there. Um, he had offices in, uh, in Robert Stigwood's um, building on Brook Street in the in the West End. And uh, Charles had an office there, so I joined and uh, was introduced to these guys who we he called Slade, who who was having a hard job getting anybody to listen to them. But he, he had a lot of faith in them, so he just kept plugging away at it until eventually we we got a sniff at the charts with "Get Out and Get With It" was first single that that uh, actually made the charts. Uh, and all of a sudden, I was uh, part of a management team that was uh, with, a, with a successful yeah. band and um, to handle. And then um, the Eggs Over Easy connection came when a, a guy, a friend of Chaz's called Peter Kauf, um, a New Yorker uh, in the music business, had, had this band, a trio, who played around Greenwich Village. They didn't have a drummer, but, uh, but they all wrote songs. They all sang. They all played each other's instruments. Every everybody, you know, there was a piano player, a bass player, and a, and a guitar player. But then they would all change around, and whoever wrote the song sang it. They were a very very versatile little band. Um, so Peter wanted a chance to to produce them, see if he could get some of the um, magic dust from the Jimi Hendrix connection to to push this band. So they came over to, to the UK, rented a place in um, Camden Town, and um, did. We went to Olympic Studios uh, over in West London, and uh, they were recording there. And I was in the office doing day to day stuff uh, for Slade and whatever. And um, I got a call from no, actually, I, I had uh, some contracts for Charles to sign, uh, so I tootled over to the studio to get these things, these papers signed. And Charles said, "Oh, Johnny, just a man." He says, "They were doing this number one eleven Avenue C." And the drummer that Chaz had found with him was it was a rock drummer, you know, he didn't swing at all, you know, you just didn't, he couldn't get the, the feel of the, the song, you know. And Chaz said, "Just pop in there, will you, Johnny, and uh, see if you can do anything with that." So, <laughs> so I went in, and it was like brushes, and it was da 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 swingy little shuffle thing, you know. So I, I did that, knocked that off. The guys went, whoa, that's exactly what we're looking for, you know. <laughs> so, so next thing I knew, I was in a band called Ace Over Easy. Because <laughs> they not only were they recording, they'd, um, they'd gone to this pub in, in Camden Town. It was a tally-ho 
which was in an old jazz venue and it was on its last legs. Nobody was going there. And um, Jack, the lead uh, singer in the, in the Exoris, he went and spoke to the landlord and said, uh, we've got a little band here. We'll go and uh, we'll play for you and um, just pass a hand around, you know. He said, OK. And honestly, it was um, in no time at all from, from one night a week. Um, we were playing several nights a week and all on word of mouth, packing the place out. And people were coming to check the band out because it was very stripped down, you know, small amps, yeah. an acoustic piano. And uh, like I said, they, they swapped around and they wrote very original songs and they were, they were a really entertaining band, sort of like the band in, in, in feel. And um, it was great. And like I say, before we knew it, it, it was packed out. We, we actually um, started making money on it. <laughs> Uh, people like John Peel were drop, dropping in to check the band out. Um, the uh, a, lot, a lot of people have said since that it, it was the the founding band band for punk rock. Yeah, because it was like I say, stripped down and good. So you know there was uh, several bands from that. You know, like Elvis Costello and, and people like that were coming by to to, yeah. to check it out. There were really uh, potentially a, a very good, a, a very important band but they never they seem to have a built-in fail mechanism <laughs> anytime that something looked like it was going to happen that was going to bring them on further they would screw it up you know <laughs> they're lovely guys lovely fellas uh, i still keep in touch with uh, with one of them instead now and uh, still keep in touch with the other two jack and audi but um they carried on. I mean, they, they, they went back to the States and recorded two or three albums and, and got some steady work going. But uh, never, never to to my mind, did they kind of fulfill what the, the real potential that they had, you know. But I still play their music now, you know, because I love the songs. Yeah. I had a good time with that band. But anyway, anyway, as I say, they went back to the States and um, were chatting me, just plugged on with Slade because we had a lot to do with that band. And then... Um, that's uh, that's more or less the end of my life in uh, in the big time.
serving sweet dill pickles And it tickles me to get some hot pastrami And to rendezvous with my true love and mama She's my new guru a few reformations over the years and my favourite period for the original animals getting back together was the mid-1970s and we've now got a Brother Bill, The Last Clean Shirt from an album that I think deserves a better hearing which is before we were so rudely interrupted. So was it Chaz that was encouraging you guys to all record and play again? Um, it was more me actually. Um, oh. It was, uh, you know, Chaz was, we had this um, management officers and everything, and um, Eric was in London um, for for whatever reason. His his uh, his career was bumming along the bottom a bit at the time, so he was um, he was looking for for something to happen, and uh, he was trying to get something going for him in in, in London. We, we went out socialising a couple of times, him and Chaz and me, and um, Alan at the same time was was a bit in the doldrums as well, you know. Yeah. And um, it, it was me who made a suggestion. I, I said, while Eric's around and, and Ch- uh, Alan's not really doing much, what about uh, getting together and doing a doing an album? And Chad said, oh, I don't know about that, you know. And Hilton was doing nothing. He was living in California, um, uh, working in a bar, I think it was. <laughs> so, so I said, let me get let me get Alan in and uh, see what he what he fancies. And uh, he turned up with his um, girlfriend or wife at the time. Um, had a chat and Alan went to the loo and uh, the, the girlfriend said, "You couldn't have picked a better time than than now for to get Alan interested because uh, there's nothing happening." I said, "Oh, cool! That's a good that's that's good to hear." So he, he was uh, more or less signed up for it. Eric uh, he was always reluctant to to do anything that involved. A reunion, but um, it was better than nothing, I think, at the time. 
and uh, Hilton was just a matter of sending him a return ticket. <laughs> so he, he came over and um, he didn't need the return ticket because he just stayed in the UK after that. But um, Charles got got more enthusiastic about the idea. So um, we hired the, the Rolling Stones mobile recording unit and um, Charles was living in this big house in Surrey called, uh, called Gould's Farm. Uh, oh, yeah, that was the thing. It was called, um, he had this big barn as well. Um, and, and he formed a company, a recording company called um, Barn Productions to, to record other stuff other than Slade and that, you know. And that was the clincher, actually, because uh, Charles was sort of humming and hollering about the idea of recording an album at all. And I said, well, put the album on your, your label, Barn Productions. And he went, bing, oh, good idea. <laughs> so, so that's what clinched it. So we, um, we, we got together and uh, locked ourselves in Gould's Farm for a couple of weeks with the mobile re- re- unit, the uh, Rolling Stones unit, and um, knocked that album out. There was never any real intention to go on tour with it or anything like that. It was just to get, get an album out, put it on, on Chaz's label and see, see what happened. It wasn't exactly, it didn't exactly uh, set the world on fire, but um, it's, it's a sound enough album. It's, uh, it's, uh, there's nice stuff in it. And um, it, over the years, um, it's gradually, I, I get many a time, I'm on, on the road nowadays and we don't go out sign CDs and merchandise and stuff. And almost invariably every night, somebody will stick a, a vinyl copy of that under me nose and say, can you sign that for me, please? You know, and it's before we were so rudely interrupted. So it's, uh, it's sold a few over the years, you know. Was it 83 when you were, you actually went on the road a bit? 83 was when we did a, a, a full-on reunion tour. That wasn't my idea either. That, I mean, that wasn't my idea at all. That was um, a guy called uh, Rod Weinberg. He was a businessman, but a fan of, fan of the animals. He got in touch with um, me and Hilton. Uh, Hilton was back living in Newcastle by that time. We had a sort of breakfast meeting with him at a, at a holiday inn. And... Uh, he, he outlined this idea. He'd already been talking to Chaz and Alan, and they decided it was a go. So they just needed me and Hilton to uh, to, to come on board. So uh, Rod came up and um, we had this meeting, and he outlined what the plan was, which is to a, a full-on world tour, mainly in North America, and a studio album and a, and a live album recorded during the tour. You know. So Hilton and me signed up for it, and uh, we got together again, and it was a it was a bit of an up and down experience. I mean, I I, I just like like being on the road anyway, so it was quite good fun for me. But there was a lot of uh, a lot of friction going on with between Alan and Charles on the one side, uh, and Eric on the other. Charles always had the sort of the business mindset, you know, and he was concentrating on on that. Eric. You can be an awkward bug, Eric, sometimes, you know. Hard to get along with. <laughs> and Alan's hard to get along with as well sometimes, you know. He's, uh, he's a prickly sort of bloke. So that that, that was always in the, on that tour, right through the whole year that we spent together. There was always this stuff going on, you know, that Eric would just disappear and go on a hoof somewhere and refuse to do this and refuse to do that. And, and Chaz and uh, Chaz and Alan would get very frustrated because they were kind of thinking... You know, we've got a show to do. Let's let's get let's get real about things. So, but we struggled through it anyway. You know, we, we made um, we made uh, the record the studio album and um, recorded another album on the on the road. Uh, the, the show was uh, the band was augmented by 
uh, other musicians. We had uh, Money, uh, an old friend, ah. a very old friend from the Annals, you know, from way back when we first went to the Flamingo Club in Water Street in 1963. Uh, great band, the big roll band. So the suit was, and Andy, of course, he worked with Eric and uh, the new animals after the original animals broke up, you know, so Eric and suit were big, big pals. And um, Eric put in a percussionist, a guy called Nippy Neuer from Amsterdam. Um, just to, uh, I, I think Eric, Eric didn't trust the, trust the band to be solid enough. Uh, in, in, uh, I think he, he insisted on things like um, a second keyboard player. And I mean, Alan doesn't, Alan, Alan doesn't need any help at all on keyboards. He's a hell of a player. But um, he, Eric, Eric insisted on Zoop being there on, on electric keyboards. And um, Nippy Neuer on percussion and congas and whatever uh, to, to sort of beef up the, the drum sound, which, you know, I didn't think was necessary, but uh, he was, he was okay. And then uh, a uh, uh, sax player, I can't remember the first one. The second one was a friend of Zoot's guy called Pat, Pat Crumbly. We used to call him Pat, Pat Grumbly. Because <laughs> 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 he was always grumbling about something. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they, they were called the orgs, <laughs> the, the augmentation. So it struggled on. So it was a bit of a bit of a patchwork, you know. We had the um, the orgs. Oh, and uh, Steve Grant, of course, uh, on guitar, and um, uh, he was a a big part of that uh, outfit because uh, Hilton um, had forgotten how to play guitar by this time. You know, all the acid and his. <laughs> You can, just, you, can, you can play the introduction to Bring It On Old To Me and the introduction to House of the Rising Sun. And after that, Steve Grant took over all the, the lead guitar solos, you know, and um, back and vocals. And he also, when we were rehearsing for the tour, Steve uh, was pretty much the musical director because uh, Eric never turns up at rehearsals, you know, and we gave up, even bother and ask him. And uh, so Steve... Uh, would would make the you know arrange the numbers and sing the lead for for all the rehearsals that we did prior to the tour, and then um, Eric turns up uh, when there's a film crew there to, to <laughs> so so and Eric insisted as well that about fifty percent of the the, the the music we played were uh, songs written by him, so that was another kind of <laughs> um, cause of friction. But like I say, he never turned up at rehearsal. So on the tour, he was singing his own songs with with um, idiot sheets on the on the on the floor. You know the, the lyrics because he couldn't remember the lyrics he had written himself. <laughs> <laughs> How that tour ever got finished, I never know. But it was uh, I enjoyed it actually. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> that was the end of the animals. in a fold. 
Since the 90s, you've had your, your own versions of the animals originally with, with other original members and obviously Eric's in America. And, and obviously that has, has continued to the present day with the, the forthcoming dates. Yeah, we got uh, we got together in uh, 93, me and Hilton with some local guys and uh, eventually got Dave Rowry in back on, on keyboards and uh, Jim Rockford, who'd worked with Dave and uh, Mike Cotton Sound. <laughs> Wheels go round and round. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, we, we just put a, a kind of animals to it was called at the time, you know, because there was two animals in it, <laughs> me and Hilton. <laughs> and I've been playing that ever since. That's 93 up to the present day. We've been uh, different lineups changing every once in a while and da 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 to where I am now with because uh, Hilton unfortunately died last year, but yeah. um, he dropped out of the band for complicated reasons <laughs> uh, a few, few many years ago. So, um, yeah, and so now it's this tight four-piece band. We've got Danny Hanley, brilliant guitarist, brilliant lead singer, a bass player from New York City, uh, Robert Roberto Ruiz. He's a good player, good backing vocals. And uh, me and we've got a, a... We had Mickey Gallagher on keyboards uh, after Dave Rowry died, um, but um, Mick quite recently had a dropout because... Um, he refused to have the jabs, and that meant we couldn't tra- travel to Europe or whatever. So he uh, he dropped out. We've got a guy called Barney Williams, who's a big mate of Danny and uh, Roberto's, and a very good player. He's actually a real two-handed player, as good as uh, good as Alan was back in the day, you know. So it's a good it's a good unit. That's fabulous to hear. And our final track is is just an example of great example of your drumming. Actually, I put a spell on you, and that sort of economical but powerful way. The set list for the forthcoming shows across UK, Europe, Canada, Australia, and, and obviously the great British R and B festival in Bank Holiday Weekend will have all all of those all the songs that, that people know and love. Absolutely, yeah, because they still stand up so well. Like I say, they're really grown up songs. What can I say, John? Talking to you is musical history. It's that important. The music and you, the, the mark that you've left on, on the industry is up there. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the best with some fabulous dates across the globe with the animals, animals and friends. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Spell on you 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.